This is Thoughts on the Table by DisgracesOnTheMenu.com. Hello and welcome back to Thoughts on the Table, the audio blog on food and food culture. Paolo here again, your host. And back with me is Diana Pinto. Hi, Diana. Welcome. Hi, I'm so glad to be back. So Diana was with us a few episodes back. Uh, It's actually more than six months now. It was last May. And uh, she talked about, spoiler alert, it was an ill-posed question, the quest for authentic and original recipes. And uh, as we mentioned last time, Diana, between various things, she has this passion for cooking and an obsession for cookbooks. In fact, her Instagram project is called The Two Week Cookbook Project, and it's becoming really, really popular. And this this means that Diana goes through a lot of cookbooks. So, (laughs) Diana, do you want to describe a little bit your project for those who don't know it already? Yeah. So, as you mentioned, I have a cookbook obsession, and... I acquire cookbooks at an alarming rate that I can't even keep up with myself. So I really began the project out of a desire to use my cookbooks, but set it in a time frame that was a bit more reasonable as opposed to say something like Julia and Julia, where it's <laughs> you use the whole cookbook. No, that's that's not manageable for my kind of brain. Um, so I, when I say two weeks at this point, uh, because I live a normal life, it's 14 recipes. So if Mm -hmm. I were a very disciplined person, then I would accomplish those recipes in two weeks. Um, So that's eventually how this project uh, manifested itself. And I knew very early on that I wanted to feature a lot of the cookbooks that I was most excited about. And a lot of those are Italian language cookbooks. Mm -hmm. And I have accumulated a lot of random or lesser known ones, but I feel like it's uh, become popular with some people because they love cookbooks too. And there's something about cookbooks. There's this multifaceted, multi-layered way of investigating not just food, but people and what's popular at a certain point in time Mm -hmm. or in a certain place. Mm -hmm. And that's what's interesting to me as a person who likes to learn about people, um, who has a background in humanities as well. So it is important to establish right off the bat that cookbooks are not an exact mirror of what's going on in the kitchens of real people or in society in general. Like they can be great for content analysis in -hmm. a larger context, but not as a singular source to support a hypothesis about what's going on in the real world. So there are many factors that go into making a cookbook, Uh, what's fashionable, what's available to the audience, um, whether or not They can sell it to a certain population in this part of the world or not. So um, there are many choices that govern whether or not a cookbook is published or whether it's successful and they can sell based on the strength of the author, the personality Mm -hmm. of the author who wrote it, um, whether or not it represents fads in food at that point in time or visual inspiration, which I think is the big Mm -hmm. one uh, right now. And that in particular ties into why with English language cookbooks, there's this narrative of Italian kitchens essentially being museums exclusively of centuries old food ways. And I mean, we see this combination of all those factors, fads, um, beautiful photographs, uh, personality that are, you know, it's one part of the equation, but the other is what is the product beyond those things. But 
what I've learned, especially since I've had a fascination for books that maybe aren't as well known and well vetted, Italy isn't this microcosm or a bubble of just this seasonal traditional cooking that hasn't changed in, you know, 70 to a thousand years at all. Um, Even throughout the decades, there are books on, I've seen books on cooking with a microwave, cooking, uh, you know, getting something on the table in 30 minutes, uh, diets, uh, all kinds of things and not, but it's not the image that people would pay for necessarily. But I do think that in the same way that cookbooks that are published over here or wherever you live are published to meet a demand, there is a lot of literature uh, um, in Italian cookbooks that was meeting possibly a demand over there as well, Mm -hmm. which is more convenience than people expect, more um, consciousness of what people are eating than people expect, um, addressing certain issues that maybe don't get as much exposure over here, such as what we were saying, seasonality. Um, And that one in particular is very important, I think, because it's a trait that people will associate very much with being Italian Mm -hmm. in a cookbook context. And, you know, I've casually noticed a shift toward these very beautiful books that offer more than a recipe and, and kitchen wisdom. Like now they're photo albums and essays and personal diaries and essentially an escapist piece of literature, Mm -hmm. which by the way, is not a bad thing. It's not evil. But when you're trying to sell a book that has this beautiful cardstock and these amazing pictures, you're probably not going to want to feature recipes that really reflect somebody who is resorting to frozen food for yeah. for dinner, um, findus, and all these uh, <laughs> all these little ingredients that don't necessarily get this image across. And seasonality is a big selling point still today. Mm-hmm. Um, is as cultures um, like mine in America are trying to, in a sense, go back to what they think is real. It's a very potent idea and not an invalid one, but um, it's not necessarily the whole story when you look at Italian food and even Italians knew it in Italy. One cookbook I have from the eighties by Lisa Biondi, and she's a whole other podcast, but um, um, Le Quattro Stagioni in Cucina con Lisa Biondi. And on the back, she laments about how now, in, in this is a book that was only for Italian audiences, how the rhythm of the seasons has been lost mm-hmm. because people are using frozen foods. And, you know, this lamenting of abandoning a way that was not only better um, for health, but also for, you know, satisfaction in the quality of the items that you're producing. Mm -hmm. So this was something that people already were thinking about. And it's not about saying that the beauty and the history isn't there, just that there's more to it. And I think it's valuable to know, um, beyond the beautiful things that, you know, people are buying American candy and putting it into a cake and baking it now in Italy, you know, it's, it's fine. It's okay. But, you know, we don't want to lie to ourselves or to other people. So I, I don't know, maybe that's just my fascination where you see this other side of things that isn't as coveted when we talk about wanting something different than what we see every day oh, yeah, and what thing. we consider to be mundane. 
Mm-hmm. And so if it's not escapist, why are you paying for it in a world where you can just click online to get a recipe? Books here need to offer a lot more than just the recipes in that regard. Uh, nobody wants to see <laughs> the other side. Yeah, it's fictionized. And yes, so you get that to, to go somewhere and, and take it all in and dream of a, a world where things maybe are like they used to be 100 years ago, where, where things are simpler, where things make sense. And, and that's comforting. Yeah. But in relation to the books that are published, even currently in mm-hmm. Italy. So I was talking prior about books that were published 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and how you see already another reality. But even now, the recipes really reflect a curiosity about international food. Oh, yeah. That people don't expect. You know, uh, you're not going to see uh, an Italian cookbook for American audiences that has, you know, riso alla cantonese in there <laughs> or doriaki, because, but there is a, there's a demand for that. There's an interest in foreign food, American food, uh, Japanese food. There's a lot of fascination. Yeah. And that fascination leads to a demand, which leads to publications that reflect this. And so you start to see a bit of a dissonance between even the books that are published now. And I think that's where it almost becomes even starker, considering the era that we're living in, very digital, very connected. Now that we have access to all this information, we still want the beautiful Uh, and the romantic. Of course we do. (laughs) Yeah. We want that perfection. We want that feel. We want that simplicity. We want that escape like you call it and and yeah and, and that's totally fine obviously but as you say you know your mission if you want is to kind of highlight the variety of uh, uh italian food that exists uh the fact that some things don't get translated intentionally uh because again they have to uh, be marketed and meet a certain demand and therefore conform to that so your mission is to kind of explain the other side of the coin and kind of give a bigger and better picture of the whole thing it's complex yeah and i think there is also a hyper focus on these seasonal foods or traditional recipes that maybe don't reflect current everyday people at least not whole people with many curiosities and many desires uh but we're talking about an appreciation for diversity that is reflected in what we are not. So, okay, as an American, if I'm looking outward, it's not just about what Italy is, but it's how Italy isn't like us. And those two are directly linked. Mm-hmm. And that's all you can have. Like if if we really look at it, there are some similarities in terms of what people want in their home cooking. Um, the convenience that is required now in a very, you know, hardworking society where everybody has longer hours and is away from the home. Um, so we're all just people and there are a lot of the common desires, but it's not a very foreign concept that, you know, you want to put something on the table quickly, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, whether or not you're in the United States or you're in Italy or you want to use a device that makes that happen mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. yeah we have instant pot we have multi-cookers and they also have it over there you know we just call it bimbi over there 
and it's <laughs> a different item, but it reflects the same, not just um, want, but a need. Of course. But it's not going to sell as well when there's already a very strongly uh, formed idea of everything that Italian culture stands for, mm-hmm. which is the artisan um, doing things, not just the hard way, but the hardest way <laughs> <laughs> for, uh, I mean, and there's no, no criticism either way. Um, and uh, I mean, we'll start to criticize when the quality goes down, but yeah, yeah, yes, <laughs> um, absolutely. that's a different story. But I think, yeah, the cookbooks are a really good um, representation at least of what people were demanding enough that a publisher decided we should put this together. Because if, if they didn't think that people wanted it, why would they publish a book about the beautiful foods of Tuscany? I mean, how many Tuscany cookbooks are out there? It's a, it's a love that never dies. And I'm not saying it should die, but there's a reason that people keep coming back to it. Mm-hmm. And it, because it offers something that we aren't getting or what we think we um, aren't getting over here. Right. So yeah. makes complete sense. Makes complete sense. So very interesting uh, discussion, right? Um, so that there's a lot of complexity in all this. So please uh, have a look at Diana's profile on Instagram. Uh, there'll be, of course, all the links in the accompanying show notes. Um, and, uh, and have a look what people really were teaching how to cook. There's things that are absolutely strange. The things that uh, were certainly fads and uh, died, as you said, a horrible death because they deserved it and didn't make history, but made this cookbook somehow. And, um, and also things that are um, maybe controversial sometimes, like you can find various ways to make carbonara, including those that right now are really banned as the horrible, possibly worse way, which includes cream. So, <laughs> Which, I mean, and as, as a point there, these are books that were written by Italians for Italians, the ones that have the cream. I have like at least yeah, 10 yeah. books now that have it. So it's, it's not just this outside thing, but also whether or not these cookbooks are any good at all. <laughs> That's what's yeah, worth yeah, looking exactly. into. Yeah, there's that too. There's that too. Right. Um, there was one, one last point that we touched upon, which is the fact that there are some similarities as well in, in the fads, maybe related to the science of cooking, um, like the mantecatura of the pasta. So like finishing the pasta uh, in its sauce. So you boil it for uh, until al dente or slightly before then, and then you finish you know, in the sauce adding more of the pasta water and all these starches to thicken the sauce that way. Um, That is something that uh, is somewhat new, but it's maybe some kind of a cross-contamination between the two worlds. What do you think about that one? Well, one thing that I've noticed that I find particularly interesting, I have cookbooks going back to the very early 20th century, and I've seen cookbooks from even earlier than that and I'm talking about Italian cookbooks here, I have yet to find one of these Italian written cookbooks for Italians that actually instructs people to take the pasta water and and finish the sauce with it. And it's presented here as well, outside of Italy, as being one of those secrets. And I think that's 
half of the allure. One of the pieces to the puzzle is that it's just fun on the internet seeing this very delicious looking pasta with this slightly dense sauce glossed over um, the pasta. It's very appealing. It looks luxurious, but also anything that you label a secret suddenly makes people flock to it. It's like, oh, this is the nonna secret. This is the Italian secret. This is going to change everything for you and Mm -hmm. take your Italian cooking to a place where it wasn't before. And I think when I, um, when I first heard of the mantecatura, it was mostly for what we, what people in the U.S. call fettuccine alfredo, oh, and yeah, of how course. it would actually, yeah, how it would actually be traditionally made in a restaurant setting in Rome, um, where you and and the mantecatura definitely is a science. There is a science. You're combining the starch with the fat to make an emulsifier, and that helps thicken the sauce without having to add a, another thickener. Um, but now we're doing it with like every sauce, anything, you know, a tomato <laughs> it's very sauce. True. I did notice <laughs> this. So this is something like um, the, the similarities is that even in Italy now, it started to go in that direction. Like I see Italian bloggers for Italians that do that. And uh, it's maybe incorporating a technique that restaurants have been using for a long time. And uh, that's my theory, at least around it. Um, the The point is that in restaurants, you boil the, the pasta into pasta boilers. And those pasta boilers uh, are murky. That's a lot of starch in that water. And um, actually, I spoke about this with Simon Pagotto in a previous podcast, who worked in a restaurant. And then, you know, that's very convenient for a restaurant. And so the pasta keeps boiling and you put it in and, you know, when it's cooked, you take it out. And what you do, you add it to a pan with the sauce and, and that's how you, you mix it because you don't want your guests to mix the pasta themselves in their plates and you serve it like that. And yes, of course, uh, it looks beautiful. It becomes very pearly, very, very coated, very um, velvety. And uh, I have to say, it, it tastes good. And so that's the the restaurant technique. I grew up with something completely different, as you as you noted, is exactly that. Pasta was uh, just drained, put in the bowl, and then, you know, the sauce, whichever sauce it was, was spooned on top, and that was it. You do the mixing at the table. There's no mantecatura. Mantecatura is done for risotto, obviously, and probably for sauces like Alfredo, but my mother doesn't know what it is. So, yeah, again, the, the end result um, is different and... Yeah, maybe it's less fancy, but it's probably a bit more traditional and a bit more authentic. So I don't know. What is authentic these I, days? Well, we can go back to my first podcast with you to yeah. n- dive into that topic. No, but um, I, you know, and again, going back to the understanding that cookbooks don't necessarily accurately reflect everything that's going on in somebody's kitchen, in the kitchen of an entire population, there's a possibility that this was common knowledge that books didn't really write about. It wasn't really given a lot of attention or it's a restaurant secret that then came into the home and then passed over here. But I, I feel like maybe there isn't a particular appeal for it outside of Italy because sometimes outside of Italy, especially with pasta, there's a reputation for oversaucing. You know, mm-hmm. having this very thick, like if you picture a tomato sauce, that's not just like sitting sadly on top of pasta without having been mixed in first, 
I mean, we all know what that picture looks like, <laughs> but <laughs> when it's finally mixed together, we, we want a thick sauce. You know, we, we don't want to see a lot of the pasta underneath because I mean, after all, we're not eating it for the pasta, right? We're eating it <laughs> for the sauce. We're not giving the flavor of the pasta light a day, but I feel like any kind of density and viscosity that you can add instantly makes, I mean, anything more appealing, you know, it's, yeah. you want, you put chocolate sauce on ice cream, you want it to be dense and thick instead of just, you know, dribbling down. But I think now in the context of social media, it's something that takes off perhaps a little more than it, you can with a book because you can visually show it. Mm, um, right. Yes. And so I don't necessarily see that in books. Even now, you might get a mention in a sidebar about it. Actually, Marcella had a sidebar in um, her book, Marcella Cucina, where she actually doesn't like it. She, she talks about how um, she doesn't think that the texture is particularly great. But she acknowledges that this is a technique. But it's something that is very satisfying to watch um, science before your eyes turn um, plain ingredients into something luxurious. And books still can't get that across as well. Mm -hmm. So um, I think as it as that star ascends in Italy, it's also ascending in the United States because then people are like, let me tell you the secret. <laughs> yeah, as a purpose, restaurants do it and probably do it for a good reason. But but now it's pushed to an extreme and everything is done this way, which is not really the case. I don't think it's necessary. And yes, in Italy, I can be certain of something. In Italy, we do like the flavor of pasta. We eat it um, even with just parmigiano and, uh, I don't know, butter. Uh, or, or olio and um, and that uh, we enjoy it that way and there's no mantecatura going on there yeah i didn't grow up with that <laughs> yeah no no normally not traditionally not not the way i grew up i even saw um a trend about pasta risottata which to me is an abomination um it's really cooking pasta in very little water from uh you know this is dried pasta i'm talking about cooked in very little water added a little bit at a time Uh, as if it was a risotto. And uh, this makes it particularly starchy and um, toasted, particularly toasted and starchy. To me, that's an abomination. But that's um, the extreme of this trend in which the mantecatura gets taken to the nth level. I think that that can become trendy abroad. I have seen that technique. And in fact, I saw it recently as an alternative for making macaroni and cheese without making a roux and a bechamela. Uh, so okay, that one I saw it because it's like, oh, it's dense enough. You don't have to do this. Just throw the cheese in and it's a shortcut. <laughs> I think it's something that, you know, shortcuts tend to reveal <laughs> their flaws. flaws. Yeah. But not entirely. For instance, you know, when you make pasta fagioli, uh, the pasta goes into the soup and, uh, you know, from dried, and all the starch remains in the soup. In fact, it thickens the, the soup. So oh, yeah, pasta ceci. You same thing. You definitely need to do it that way. Yeah, you don't boil the pasta separately in plenty of boiling water. You just add it to the soup and you eat the whole thing. So, yeah, there's certainly something to be said uh, about using starch as a thickener. And I can see you can make a mac and cheese like that. I still argue they would probably taste better with a roux and with a bechamela. Um, 
start in which you melt the cheese and that creates that base obviously um yes so anyway starch is not all that bad it's used and uh yes it's maybe maybe one of the tricks but um, when you start to abuse of that it's probably a sign of a fad or some kind of a trend which maybe will will end at some point yeah and that's why i found it particularly interesting that i really don't see it mentioned in italian cookbooks over Mm -hmm. time Uh, maybe i'm not looking at the right cookbooks but I, it's not, you're not beaten over the head with it nearly as much as you are online today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think your research has revealed the fact that this is a new, a new trend. And uh, as a result, yeah, makes you wonder, you know, about its authenticity. We could talk forever, Diana. I think we're out of time for this one. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it was a pleasure talking with you again about Italian food, cookbooks your projects and um you know try to make sense that this is happening and look back at myself did i change my way of cooking when i moved abroad um have i absorbed these techniques myself from social media have i lost the way my mom makes pasta now that i'm here and cooking this way am i actually teaching my mom how to make pasta a new way when i go back i do all of those things so this is always evolving, always changing, and certainly it's a false premise, the one to try and, you know, classify, codify everything into precise parameters. Yeah, and I think, I mean, for one, I could say that I don't cook the way that my father cooked, um, but that's also because at the end of the day, cookbooks are just about giving you something new to try. So it's not a felony if they don't completely change your way of cooking or if they don't completely encapsulate an entire country in one book. It's think of it as a project for a night that could be interesting. And and that's what makes it fun. And I think that they can be wonderful sources of inspiration. And I think that is eventually where an obsession slash passion with cookbooks comes from is they're very inspiring. And even if that recipe doesn't work that you tried, you still love holding that book in your hand and flipping through it and dreaming of what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much, Diana. Wonderful. Again, talking with you. Best of luck with everything, your studies, um, your project and uh, everything else in your life. Thank you again for this. Well, thank you. I love being here. So anytime. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) I'll pick you up on that. Bye now. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.